test one, two, one, two. Can y'all hear me? All right, all right. Does anybody need a Bible? If you need a Bible, raise your hand. The ushers are coming down the aisle and they will provide one for you. If you don't have one, that Bible is now yours. If you do have one and you're borrowing it, please give it back to the ushers after the end of service. Amen. Any other hands? Praise God. So we're going to be reading from Psalm 99. Psalm 99. Let me pray and then we'll read that scripture together. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for the privilege of prayer. We thank you for the privilege of worship. The fact that we can with confidence come to your throne of grace in our time of need and there find grace and mercy. Father, we need you. Oh, God, we need you in the preaching of your word. God, we need you in the hearing and the understanding of your word. We need you in the application of your word. Would you cause a holy awe of who you are to fill our hearts and our minds today? That we would live lives of worship, both with our lips and with our lifestyle. Oh, God, not unto us, but unto you be all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Psalm 99. This is God's word. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. And the pillar of the cloud spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statue that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord, our God, is holy. This is God's word. And family, I am convinced that with all that is going on in the world today, we need a big view of God. When we think about wars and rumors of wars and corruption at the highest level on the global stage and on the local level, we need to know that we serve a God who is enthroned in heaven, who is high and holy, and who is in charge of all things. We need a big view of our God. And there's nothing new under the sun. What we are facing and what we're seeing in today's world is indeed common to man. But what remains the same is that we have a sovereign, holy king who's enthroned in heaven and who reigns. You consider David. David, think of him. He was a soldier. David was a commander. David was a king himself. And his life was surrounded by turmoil. He was surrounded by enemies from within, enemies outside. And David knew how to lead in battle, but David also knew how to bow low in worship at the splendor of God's holiness. But when you think of holiness in regards to God, I want you to think not only of moral purity, which most people's minds go to, 
And in fact, it's true, God is morally pure. He is perfect in that way. But rather think of God in his transcendence, in his bigness, the godness of God, if you will, being high and lifted up, separate for any and everything that he has created. God is holy. He's holy in every attribute. He's holy in every perfection, holy goodness, holy grace, holy justice, and holy wrath. God is holy. And this is both the beauty and the terror of holiness. A beauty that is so beautiful that it's intimidating. It literally takes your breath away. I remember when I was on a big old cruise ship out in the Mediterranean, or out where were we, the uh, Caribbean, I believe. Um, we was out there where there was a whole bunch of water. And I saw a blue that I had never seen before. It was beautiful. It was amazing. And as I looked at the sea, as I looked out, I was amazed and also terrified because I realized how small I am in comparison to how big God is. If you think, brothers, back to your wedding day when you saw your wife and you've seen her many times, but that wedding day is something special where even the coolest of brothers uh, is intimidated at the fact that their wife is so beautiful on that day. And as cool as you think you are, you best believe that people in your wedding party are taking bets on whether or not, not if, but when you're going to cry. And this is true because of the moment of the occasion, because of the beauty of your future wife and the responsibilities to make a grown man tremble. It's a fearsome beauty. And it's not an oxymoron. And it's not something new, but it originates with God himself. And as we continue in this series on the splendor of holiness, the question I have for us today is what is your motive for worship? What is your motive, ARC, for worship? Do you worship God only for what he's done or do you worship God for who he is? I heard my brother Michael mention last week in his sermon about his roommate who loves to praise God. But there are times where he feels like, man, I don't feel like praising the Lord. And he said the times that he least feels like it is the times that he most needs to press in to God because he is worthy. And not only is our God worthy, but our God is also holy. And R.C. Sproul in his book on the holiness of God, he has this quote about this inner conflict that we have regarding holiness. He says, and I quote, we tend to have mixed feelings about the holy. There is a sense in which we are at the same time attracted to it, and repulsed by it. Something draws us toward it while at the same time we want to run away from it. We can't seem to decide which way we want it. Part of us yearns for the holy while part of us despises it. We can't live with it and we can't live without it. How about you? What is your motive for worship? Well, the big idea, the big takeaway that gets at the heart of this question and for the sermon today is, brothers and sisters, let the fearsome beauty of the holiness of our God motivate you to worship. Don't let anything hinder or distract you from that. In fact, when things seem the ugliest in life are the times that you should press in to the beauty of that holiness. And we'll see this unfold in three pictures throughout the text today, all separated by the refrain that you see here in the psalm, holy is he in verse 3, holy is he in verse 5, and our God is holy in verse 9. Verse 1 to 3, the picture of the awesome God. 
The Lord, capital L-O-R-D, reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. So we see right from the break, David wants to get in the hearts and the minds of the people that to rightly worship God is to rightly know God. To rightly worship God is to rightly know God. And David starts off with this covenantal personal name when referring to God, capital L-O-R-D, all in caps. What that translates to is this God is not just generic, but this God is Yahweh, the God who revealed himself to Moses and revealed himself to his people on that sacred mountain where he told Moses, take off your shoes because where you are standing is now holy ground. And to covenant is to enter into relationship in which God has always wanted to do. You think about marriage when you think about covenant, right? God has always desired a relationship with his people. You think of Adam and Eve in the garden where God walked with them in the cool of the day. You think of the tabernacle where he was the pillar by cloud by day and fire by night. You think of the temple where his Shekinah glory dwelt and when he was among his people. You think about Emmanuel, God with us and Jesus, the spirit of God who now lives within us. And you think about the end where there be no more sun because God himself will be with his people and his people will be with God. God has always desired a relationship with his people. The question is, do his people desire to have a relationship with God? David knew God. And David knew God's name. And indeed, there is a lot to a name. We think of nicknames that only family and friends know that they can only call you. You think of husbands and wives who have nicknames that are only special to them because of an intimate knowledge. God knew David, and David knew God personally. And J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, he said, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? Think about that. He goes on to say the rule for doing this is simple but demanding. Turn each truth that we learn about God, and we learn about God every week, every Sunday, every Thursday at Bible study. We're constantly hearing. He says, take that truth that we learn about God into a matter of meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. Let me say that one more time. You turn each truth that you learn about God into a matter of meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. When was the last time you meditated on who God is? Have you meditated on who God is? Not just knowledge about him because facts alone don't make for a relationship. Not just based on feelings or experience or how you think God should be, because feelings are subjective and experiences can at times deceive us. But do you know God and how he has revealed himself in the objective truth of scriptures? This is a sure way to know God and for God to know you. Isaiah 66, 2 says, this is the one whom I look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This is the one whom God looks to. Yes, God is knowable. Yes, God is intimate. But never forget, and you can meditate on this, the Lord is the holy king who reigns. And this is something that we should never forget. This is what was key to David's success. 
This was key to his sanity. This was key to his safety. He was a man after God's own heart because he followed after God and his word, and God blessed him. But let us never forget, just like David, who never forgot who he was in relation to who God is. And in fact, the Psalms were communicated through song as a means for the people of God to remember this truth. And many of them was accompanied by musicians. So David is like the MC in a cipher. He's like, bring me my beat. I need the harp. I need the lyres. I need the string instruments. And then he would hit them with metaphors and punchlines so that they would remember. Remember the truths of who God is. And not only is this a picture of the king, but verse 1 is a picture of a king to be feared, to be in awe of. Let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. You notice there in that text that there's a whole lot of shaking going on. There's something about terror. There's something about fear that causes people to never forget. You know about this. It only takes one time, just one time, to experience something scary, whether it's a roller coaster, uh, whether it's a scary movie, or if it's a scary person, you're like, look, I don't ever want to experience that again. And there are two events that are etched in the mind of the Israelites when it comes to the fear of the Lord that made them say, we don't ever want to experience that again. And one of those is at Mount Sinai. Number two was the return of the Ark of the Covenant. At Mount Sinai, it was like a sensory overload. Moses was given the Ten Commandments, and just by the sound of God's voice, the people shook. Exodus 20, verse 18 to 19, records that scene where it says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Lest we die. And that was just a glimpse of the afterglow of his glory. He then doubles down to remind them that God sits enthroned upon the cherubim and let the earth quake. And this is a verbal picture of the Ark of the Covenant, the earthly tabernacle that represented God's very presence. The ark was this box that was made out of wood and made out of gold. It had four rings that came around side of this, this, this box. And no one was to touch this except for the Levites. Anyone who dared to touch it would surely die. As you see in the scripture reading with Uzzah and what happened to him. The ark also had a lid made of gold that formed a seat called the mercy seat that sat between two cherubim angels. And when you think about these angels, I don't want you to think of the cartoon of the babies with wings. No, sir. No, ma'am. That is not what should come to mind. But what should come to mind is the first mention in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, where Adam and Eve was forced out of the garden and God placed on the east side a cherubim with a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the tree of life. These are like the celestial sentinels of God. When people see them, it causes men to fall flat on their faces. Brothers and sisters, the scripture says our God sits enthroned upon these cherubim with absolute power and absolute authority. So if the symbolic presence of God 
was to be handled with holy care, how much more the reality of who God is. God is holy, awesome, beyond imagination. And David is bringing to mind, do not forget the godness of God. So why is it important to be reminded of this? So that the fearsome beauty of God's holiness would motivate us to worship. Because to not ascribe worth to God as holy is to worship God wrongly. He is not the man upstairs. He does not wink at sin. He is not to be trifled with. When the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray, they saw him doing miracles. They realized this man had great power. They needed to know what was the source of that. And they saw from a distance Jesus praying. They said, teach us. And the first thing Jesus tells them is, hallowed be the Father's name. Above all else, God is holy. He's above us. He's beyond us. There is none like him. And when people give glory to Mother Nature for what God has done, guess what? One day, nature is going to quake before the king. When people give credit to the universe for what God has done, guess what? The universe is going to quake before this king. All that was created will quake before the king. In verse 2 and 3 says, the Lord is great in Zion. He's exalted above all peoples. Let them praise his great and awesome name. Holy is he. God is great and there's no one above him, both in Zion among his people and all the people of the world. He is sovereign over all the creatures in heaven. He's sovereign over all the people on earth. He is to be exalted. He is to be lifted high. Therefore, our only natural response to this awesome king is awesome praise. There's a story in Luke 19 of Jesus receiving praise like this. When he came in on the donkey, we call it the triumphant entry, where the people were laying down their cloaks and they were laying down palm branches and they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And as the people were laying down those cloaks and palm branches, the Pharisees in the crowd, they were mad mad. They told Jesus, tell them to stop praising you like this. And what did Jesus say? He said, I tell you, If they keep quiet, the very stones will cry out. And if they keep quiet from praising me, the stones will cry out. And what's fascinating here is that Jesus let the Pharisees know that praise should be encouraged and not suppressed. The people are expressing great joy. And that joy is so appropriate. That joy is so necessary that if they did not praise him, It will be necessary and appropriate for an inanimate object to fill that void. Why praise? Why praise? It says there in the text. Because his name is great and his name is awesome. So when we praise God, yes, bring to mind who he is, but also bring to mind his past faithfulness towards you. Recall how great and awesome his name has been to you personally. There used to be a line that uh, my Pentecostal brothers and sisters would say when bringing to mind the goodness of the Lord. They would say, when I think about the Lord and all that he's done for me, my soul cries out, hallelujah, praise God for saving me. His name is great and his name is awesome. 
if for nothing else, we should praise him for salvation. When you were lost, he found you. When you was headed for self-destruction, he rescued you. And now the Lord is your light and your salvation. Whom shall you fear? He is the good shepherd to you now who leads, who guides you, who protects you. He is the ever-present help in your time of need. The Lord is your rock, family. He is your fortress. He's your deliverer in whom you should take refuge. He's your shield, the horn of your salvation. He is your stronghold. In ancient times, a person's name was much more than just an identifier or a title. The name actually expressed the nature and attribute of a person. So the person of God and the name and title of God cannot be separated. In Psalm 910, it says, those who know your name trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. And for my Christian brothers and sisters, are you trusting in the name of the Lord today? Are you trusting in him? What name do you need to be reminded of when raising your children? And praying for a loved one, for one who may be sick, a family member who needs salvation. Let the name of the Lord strengthen your faith and lead you to a greater praise and worship of this holy God. And for my friends who are not Christians who are here today, the name you need to know, and the name you need to trust in, is the name Jesus. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says that salvation is found in no one else. There is no one under heaven by any other name by which men can be saved, but by the name of Jesus. Romans 10 13 says, for everyone who calls on this name shall be saved. The reality is, it's something about that name Jesus. Call on him today in repentance and faith. Jesus is more than a miracle worker. He's more than a great teacher. Jesus is the savior of sinners. In fact, that's what his name means. And that's what he does. Oh, praise his great and awesome name. And the beauty of holiness, we saw in verse 1 to 3, a picture of this awesome king. In verse 4 to 5, we see another picture. Another picture of the beauty of holiness of the righteous act of this holy king. Look there in verse 4 and 5, it says, The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness. And Jacob, exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. The king is strong indeed. He has power. He has authority to act and do whatever he pleases. But guess what he chooses to do? He chooses to act in righteousness and justice. This is what he loves Psalm 89, 14 says that righteousness and justice are the foundations of his very throne. On one side is righteousness, another side is justice. This is what makes the very foundations of God's throne. And if this is the case, and it is, then every man, every woman, every boy, every girl has a big problem, a huge dilemma. Because who could possibly live up to this standard? And because he is righteous, he must punish sin and the sinner. 
See, that's bad news because every human being that ever lived on the face of this earth has sinned, both as my sister Carter prayed in deed, but also in thought. Our very thoughts condemn us. Humanity is in desperate need of someone who is righteous and as just as God himself. We need a savior who is absolutely perfect, who can justify us. But also, I want you to look at the infinite wisdom and love of God. Over 2,000 years ago, God the Father sent his son, born of a virgin, to live the life holy, perfect, and righteous, obeying God at every point, the life that we ourselves could not live. And then he died a death that we should have died because we deserved it. And he was buried because he died. He was really dead. Buried in a tomb, a borrowed tomb for three days. But on the third day, Jesus rose and proved that he is the acceptable sacrifice on our behalf. And in that way, God himself is just and the justifier of all who believe. Christ's death satisfied the righteous requirement. And now those who put their faith in Jesus are now declared righteous in right standing with a holy God. What was impossible at once is now possible for you. For those that have trusted in Jesus, praise the Lord. But for those who have not trusted, today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe in this Christ. God did this, it says in the verse in Jacob, in the verse 4, which is another name for the nation of Israel. God's reason for choosing the nation of Israel was that the Messiah would come through them. And to whom much is given, much is required. They, as God's chosen people, were to go and to teach others and show them about the coming Messiah. As Isaiah 42.6 says, they were supposed to be a light unto the Gentiles. So that every nation... Every tribe, every tongue would come to know and to worship this God. And in many ways, Israel failed. But God never fails. And today, because God never fails, whether Jew or Palestinian, whether Russian or Ukrainian, whether people from Southeast Asia to Southeast D.C. can now come to know and worship this God. For all who put their trust in Jesus are now God's people. And in that way, God sending his son is the most righteous act of the holy king. And the only appropriate response for such an act is in verse 5, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. You see the beauty of the holiness looking at the awe of the king. We see the righteous act of this holy king. And now we turn our attention to the beauty of holiness expressed in the mercy, faithfulness, and forgiveness of this holy king. In verse 6 to 9. Verse 6 says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered him. When you think about Moses and Aaron and Samuel, they all served in a type of priestly function. They were mediators between God and his people, and yet they were extremely weak and flawed individuals. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that's an encouragement. The fact that a high, exalted, holy God 
one whose name is great and awesome, would condescend to answer his people when they pray is mind-blowing. You remember Aaron? He failed as the first priest. He made an idol out of a golden calf. Moses sinned by striking the rock that God told him to speak to. He was disobedient. Samuel was disappointed in the fact that his sons didn't follow the Lord. And as a result, the people cried out for a king. So they were men of flesh, and yet they cried out to God, and he answered them. God had mercy. And we see his kindness is meant to lead to repentance. There's something about personal failure and brokenness that readies the repentant heart for true obedience and service. And David knew this all too well. In Psalm 51:17, this is David praying a prayer of repentance to God. And we have opportunity to peek behind the scenes and see David's heart. And he says in verse 17 that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And this should be encouraging to those who have made mistakes in the past to the disobedient that have done things God said not to do and not doing things that God said told us, told us to do. Sometimes we can be like disobedient children who you tell your child, yes, you can go outside, but don't go past the fence. And what does the child do as soon as you tell them that? They either go past the fence or they go all the way up to the fence line wanting to obey the letter of the command but not the spirit. How are your hearts in these things? God is after our hearts. How do you respond to God's mercy? Do you continue to push the limits? Do you continue to push the boundaries of this holy God? Or do you respond with brokenness, a broken and contrite heart God will not despise? Call upon him and he will answer you. And look how God answered Moses and Aaron in their brokenness in verse 7. It says, in the pillar of cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies in the statute that he gave them. You see, the fruit of repentance is obedience. They kept God's commands. And see how God responded. He says, a pillar of cloud. The pillar was a visible sign that God gave them so that all the people knew that God was with them. God had forgiven his people. He had poured out mercy towards them. He appeared in this form of a cloud by day and a fire by night, guiding his people through the wilderness. This was the holy faithfulness of God, a memory in their mind that God would never leave them nor forsake them. And here's the incredible thing, church. We have a greater witness. No longer a pillar by day or a fire by night, but we have the spirit of God who is leading us and guiding us. Romans 8, 16 says, he bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Amen. Not only would God not forsake them, but God has not forsaken you. In verse 8, we also see God forgave them. It says, O God, O Lord, our God, you answered them and you were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoing. Yes, God forgave them, but God did punish their misdeeds. This was both for their correction and as a way to preserve God's holiness. And any good parent does this for his children. And God does this for us too. 
out of love and to prove that we are legitimate children. Don't despise the Lord's discipline. Hebrews 12, verse 10 and 11 says, For earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Temporary hurt compared to sharing in his holiness. There's no comparison. But there is a great assurance that comes from the discipline of the Lord, that we are his and he is ours. So that we, like in verse 9, can say together, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. As he says that, this is the third and last time that the holiness of God is mentioned in these nine verses. And the repetition of holy three times is a technique that Jews would use to express an intensity of something. They didn't have bold and underlined highlights and things of that sort. You think of Isaiah in chapter 6 where the angels were around the throne. And what did they do? They cried out, holy, holy, holy. These angels was expressing with force and with passion the truth of the supreme beauty of God's holiness. And if so for angels who in 1 Peter long to look into salvation, how much more for you and I? His holiness is motivation for our worship. The text says, exalt the Lord our God and worship. To ascribe to him his worth as our God and his holy mercy and his holy faithfulness and his holy forgiveness towards us. Yes, worship includes praying and reading and, and, and communion and singing and giving and all of these various things, but the highest form of praise, the highest form of worship is obedience to him and his word. We do this by faith, knowing that one day our faith will become sight. And we will behold the awe and the beauty of his holiness and worship at his holy hill. So by way of application, the true beauty of holiness is in the eye of the beholder. When Christ came, they saw no beauty in him that they should desire. Isaiah 53.2. And he was the perfection of beauty. So brothers and sisters, please know, some people are just not going to like you because of who you represent. Some people are just not going to like you because you're not willing to compromise. They despise Jesus. They're going to despise you. But you're in good company. Be reminded today to live a life of worship not to please man, but to please God. Another way of application, when you think about how, how, how can I grow in this, this worship, the splendor of God's holiness? You want to aim at getting a bigger picture, a bigger view of God through his word. When you read the Bible from the perspective that this book is primarily about God himself and not about us, first and foremost, we can see God as he has revealed himself. And you can pray and ask God to show you his glory. Moses did it, and God answered that prayer. 
So we'll end with the same quote that I started with in the beginning from R.C. Sproul. He said, we tend to have mixed feelings about the holy. There's a sense in which we are at the same time attracted to it and repulsed by it. Something draws us towards it while at the same time we want to run away from it. Can't seem to decide which way we want it. Part of us yearns for the holy while part of us despises it. We can't live with it and we can't live without it. What is your response regarding your motive for worshiping the Lord today? Are you in awe of the holy king? Do you recognize the righteous act of this holy king who dared die for sinners? Are you thankful? My brother Tim opened up the service today for his holy mercy, his faithfulness, and his forgiveness towards us. All of this paints the picture of the beauty of his holiness. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you, Lord. Father, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name among the nations. Hallowed be your name among our neighbors here in Southeast. Hallowed be your name in our church. Holy Father, in the coming days and weeks, would you give us a bigger view of your majesty and your holiness that we would see and be in your presence, Lord, and that in your presence we will rightly see ourselves. God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy towards us. Continue to make us a holy people that trust that what you began in us, you will bring to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God, we thank you that you are sovereign both over the ends and the means of a thing. God, sanctify your people by your truth. Your word is truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.